Well, let's read together from uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Uh, If ever there was a passage that gives you a healthy sense of your inadequacy, then I think this is it. Uh, You'll be frustrated because there'll be many things I won't be able to uh, speak to in this passage, but it's good to be frustrated uh, if that drives you back to the Word of God. Let's pray as we consider this Word together. Gracious Father, by your Spirit open our eyes, Open our hearts to see your Son, to capture his glory, and Father, to be driven to live faithfully before him until the day we meet him. And we ask this for the sake of the kingdom. Amen. Uh, Very kindly, an outline, or at least a space for an outline, has been provided in your leaflet if you are a person who does take notes. Uh, The topic is the Christ-centred life and uh, if we look at the passage that you'll see on page 954 or indeed in your outline, uh, this goal of the Christ-centred life, as far as I can tell in this passage, has three parts to it and they quite neatly split into three verses. Uh, That's not my idea, even though I do like order and structure. I think actually that's the way Paul's put the passage together. So the three points I have this morning about the Christ-centred life, are to recognise Christ over creation in verses 15 to 17, Christ in reconciliation in verses 18 to 20, and Christ in the believer in verses 21 to 23. Christ over creation, Christ in reconciliation, and Christ in the believer. I want to start with the last verse, verse 23, because it seems to me that's where Paul wants to land. That's where Paul wants us to uh, find ourselves at the end of these words which he puts together for the church at Colossae. Continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Self-sufficiency moves us from the hope of the gospel. Self-sufficiency moves us from the hope of the gospel. Self-sufficiency, it seems, is the antidote 
to the Christ-centred life. So what does the Christ-centred life look like? I took a funeral on Friday. I use the term lightly because the eulogy that was given actually took over the funeral. Uh, It went for somewhere around about uh, 30 minutes, which was longer than the rest of the service combined. Uh, It was 30 minutes of self-sufficiency. Anecdotes, memories, reflections about the deceased. A life full of good works, full of compassion, full of kindness, much of which I suspect was quite true. A life of giving of good works and service to other achievements, abilities that sounded impressive before those gathered and I think the subtext was that they would have sounded impressive before God. This often happens in eulogies. Uh, It's called in the industry justification by death. My seat was positioned behind the lectern. I couldn't even subtly notion to the speaker that perhaps enough had been said about this life when we reached the 25-minute mark. My seat was also facing the coffin. And the longer the speaker shared of this person, the more I kept thinking, all this, and you finish up in a polished box to be buried or burnt. Self-sufficiency is indeed the enemy of the Christ-centred life. The Bible passage I'd chosen to speak on at this funeral was from John 14, where you may remember Jesus talks about going to a place where he will indeed provide a place for eternity for all those who love him. I thought perhaps uh, this mountain of self-sufficiency could be rescued by the coming passage. Some words could be said which could speak about the life that I know this person had received in Christ. Indeed, Margaret, the lady whose life was being celebrated, herself would have said that she lived and died in Christ, that the gift of eternal life is what saved her. The Bible reading came after the eulogy, only unfortunately the Bible reader had been given the wrong details about the passage, so she read a passage that I wasn't prepared for. What do we do next? Undeterred after a half-hour eulogy, I began with a question. How does God sum up Margaret's life? How does God sum up her life? What will he say about her? She was made for Jesus. She was made for Jesus. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. It's a scary thought, isn't it, that Paul was only halfway through what he was writing. He began this sentence at verse 9. The sentence reaches back. Paul prayed that his listeners would be Filled with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and spiritual understanding that the Spirit gives. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Self-sufficiency moves us from the hope of the gospel. 
That hope, according to verse 5 of chapter 1, as we heard last week, is stored up in heaven. The box is not the end. That hope is stored up in heaven for all those who have heard and accepted the good news about Jesus Christ. The gospel reverses human presumption. The gospel reverses human presumption. That is that idea that surely all the effort, all the energy, all the commitment, all my skills, all my abilities, all that I've given over my years in life, surely at some point must have made some contribution to my credit before God for eternity. Even Christians struggle with the Bible's answer to that question. The eternal inheritance, as uh, the New Testament writer Peter would put it, is called imperishable, unfading. It's fixed. It's given to us through the death death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons it's fixed is to rescue us from the idea that we think we might be able to contribute towards it. That's why the hope is stored up for you. Just in case you think for a moment, and we all do, that somehow we might be able to earn it. It's one thing for unbelievers to eulogise and speak and reflect appropriately quite often on the efforts and the energy and the skill and ability of those that they've lost. But Christians have no place for living that way. As if God would own them. As if God would owe them. I felt that inadequacy even trying to sum up these words this morning. If it wasn't for Paul's pastoral concern that surrounded these verses, we could be left overwhelmed and rightly wondering what place we had in God's plans at all. If we just had verses 15 to 20, you will note that these are God's plans, if I can put it this way, without us. That is, this is his purposes for his son. This is who he is. This is what he's done. And he's done it, to put it crudely, whether you choose to believe it or not. This is the power of the gospel. Paul doesn't begin with us when he speaks about the Christ-centred life. Do you note that from the passage? He begins with God's plans that centre around Jesus. And before we even consider what's been stored up for us, verse 5, Paul says we must consider the great inheritor, Jesus. For you will note in verse 15, he's the firstborn. That is, in Israel, the firstborn son stood to inherit. Jesus inherits creation. Adam may have been made in the image of God, damaged by sin. Jesus is God's exact representation. He is the image as it should have always been. He is the image over creation, revealing God's plans and purposes for creation. He was there at its beginning. He will be there at its renewal. And this passage says, in between those two points, he is sustaining Note how Christ-centred God's plans are explained in verse 16. Here is a succinct statement of the gospel. 
All things have been created through him and for him. It's always tempting, isn't it, when we have the opportunity to share our testimony to begin with what Christ has done in our lives. And there is a place for that. But it seems the way Paul writes, it begins with what God has done in the life of Christ. That's where he starts. From creation's beginning to creation's goal. And the Christ-centred life begins, according to this passage, with accepting that Jesus is the creator, sustainer and inheritor of all things. This is the claim of the gospel, whether we've come to faith or not. We gather each week in our homes on Sundays like this as we have opportunity to remind ourselves of the application of verses 15 to 17. It's not about us. And yet in this second three verses, in a remarkable act of grace, if the focus of verses 15 to 17 is Christ over creation, then the summary of the message of the next three verses is Christ in reconciliation. And if the magnificence of those last three verses has put us in our place, and it ought to do that, these next three tell us what that place is. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Three words capture these three verses. Ruling, resurrected, and reconciling. Ruling, resurrected, and reconciling. Let me take them in reverse order. That is, verse 20, the reconciling work of the cross enables what God has in mind for his people. Peace with him. Through Jesus' death, peace with God is achieved. The divine plan is fulfilled because God came to earth as a man. God's fullness, verse 19, dwells in Jesus. And then verse 18, we discover Jesus becomes the first to inherit resurrection from the dead. The second part of verse 18 literally says, so that he might come to have first place in all things. That is the mark of the Christ-centred life that he might come to have first place in all things, including your life. He is the risen, ascended Lord who reconciles all things. He begins with reconciling us to himself. Do you remember the words of Romans 8? It says creation is groaning. It longs for the day when our redemption will be completed because then creation will be reconciled to Christ. We are the beginnings of this new creation. And Paul acknowledges even now that not everyone submits to his lordship. And that's why he says, remain firm, verse 23. I caught up recently with a friend who'd been a Christian for decades. And his faith had failed him. 
He tossed it in. He was no longer pressing on with God's people. He was a home group leader at one point. And the conversation went along the lines of disinterest and other things taking up his life. But what intrigued me most was that he didn't just say that his faith had failed him, but he'd come to a point where he thought Jesus didn't exist. And it took me a while to work out why he'd come to this place. Because it made it easier for him. Because it means everybody else is the fool. If he can claim that. And he has no responsibility himself. It would have been enough for him to say, yes, I've just lost faith. I no longer believe the promises. But to make the claim that Jesus did not exist, in many ways, it's just the height of arrogance. Because the gospel doesn't rely on whether you believe it or not. The gospel relies on the historical reality that Christ came and gave his life in order to reconcile the world to himself. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. Paul acknowledges that not all will submit to his lordship now. And even a quick glance of the letter tells us the opposition this church would face. We're 2,000 years on. We know how sophisticated opposition to the gospel has become, if that's the word to use. It's on a global scale. Well, this is a small, fledgling, early church, and Paul knew what they would begin to face. Opposition from within. Opposition from without. Rules and traditions that had no benefit for the believer. But those who have become a part of the church seek to live with Jesus as Lord. And you know what marks their membership? His resurrection. That's how you know you are a part of this church that Jesus reconciles to himself. We talk a lot about church membership. A fellow worker told me about a church in the US. Uh, The nomination will remain nameless that meets every six weeks to go through all the members on its role. And to work out who's been around and who hasn't been around and to actually cast votes as to whether they should remain on the church role. All in favour say aye, all against say nay. It's a very comprehensive system. If you haven't been to church, expect someone to come chasing you. If you don't keep coming to church, expect them to vote you out. What makes you a member of the church, according to verse 18? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was the first to be raised from the dead. And he promises that resurrection to all for whom he has died. Chapter 3 of Colossians. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And when Christ, verse 4, chapter 3, who is your life appears then you'll also appear with him in glory. There is the goal of the Christian life, the Christ-centred life. The cross is the great act of reconciliation. It brings us to God now and it will deliver us on that last day. He is the first in all things and he is to be the first in our lives. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you'll also appear with him in glory. You know what struck me the other day? That even in heaven, 
Jesus will be recognised as the Lamb. We will never reach a point where we do not remember that Christ gave his life for us. Even in heaven with our new bodies, with the glorious promises of God fulfilled and completed in him, when all of the fragility and the limitations of this life are removed, guess who will be on the throne? The Lamb. We will never move on from the cross. Only live with deep thankfulness in the light of it from now until eternity. And that's why Paul in this last section shifts his pronouns, verse 21, from he is to you are. This is his act of grace. He is to you are. The you are is in two parts. You once were, verse 21, alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. Someone once said, apathy masks a genuine resistance to the promises of God. Apathy masks a genuine resistance to the promises of God. I have sympathy for the unbeliever at funerals. No one has funerals on their bucket list. No one wants to be there. But they feel compelled to do the right thing, to honour a life, to respect a person. And then someone gets up and talks about God and they think, I don't, didn't come here for this. But I can't leave because that would be rude. Invariably, I watch the eyes wander, wander, look elsewhere around the place. They're caught. They're caught by the gospel and its claims. And as we look at the casket, you cannot help but ask yourself, there has to be more than this. Is this the sum total? Is this all there is? Most are polite after the service. They want to be respectful. I sometimes want to ask them what they're really thinking. Apathy masks a genuine resistance to the promises of God. And the problem is, it's because there are no half measures when it comes to what God promises. Verse 22. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Why? To present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God doesn't deal in half measures. He's not interested in religion. He's not looking for you to make him a part of your life. He claims ownership. No wonder hearing about the gospel makes us feel awkward. So verse 23, continue in your faith, established and firm. And do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Note the order of God's gracious work in our lives. Verse 22 tells us what it means to be made alive in Christ. Verse 23 tells us what it means to live for Christ. You've been made alive in Christ, Paul says, so live for Christ. Both are God's resurrection work in the lives of his people so that we will be presented without blemish, free from accusation, when the risen Lord returns. Self-sufficiency moves us from the hope of the gospel. Paul is really urging us to be content. To be content in Christ. Are we content with this portrait of Christ in Colossians 1? Is it enough for us? Is it sufficient 
Last week I walked down West Terrace in the city. At one end is a Subaru dealer. Some fine all-wheel drive vehicles. Next to them is the Lexus showroom. Some luxury cars, sports sedans, SUVs. Then you can't miss the CMI Toyota Centre. Several levels, a monument to their success. A company that surely has been successful. Multiple floors, private and commercial vehicles, cars, trucks, models of all sizes. And if you walk far enough, you'll come to BMW Adelaide, which I think surely is the most impressive of all showrooms. You can choose from a BMW 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 or 8 series. Such is the breadth of their technology and their capacity for the four-wheel car. But you'll probably miss one of the smallest properties, properties along West Terrace. It can't be half the size of this hall. S.D. Tillett Memorials. They call themselves Monumental Masons. They have their own display. It's not locked up. It's not behind glass doors. It occurred to me that day or night, you could peruse the stones, select for yourself how you'd like them to sum up your life. At the end of life, all your achievements, all your entitlements can be summed up with one conclusion, stone dead. It is a monumental error to think that you can contribute anything to your life in Christ. For he has done it all. He has given all. He is sustaining all. And he plans to deliver all who have given their lives to him. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of the gospel. All things have been created through him and for him. If you've been made alive in him, verse 23, continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be overwhelmed by the blessing of this picture of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that ultimately and firstly it was for him, but by your kindness and grace, it is also for us. Father, help us to not move from this hope through the work of your Spirit and for the honouring of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.